This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 193rd edition of the program. Today is Friday, May 17th, and before we get into the news, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us for the very first time, or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Alex Murphy, Aron Donnelly, Javier, Jeffrey Hyde, Corte Yeo, Jacinto Rico, Mike Sarvis, Nathaniel Calloway Jr., OPC&D, and Susan Canfield. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or you can click join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. This week on the Humanist World Podcast, Joe Biden incoherently explains why he's against Medicare for All. Tulsi Gabbard talks Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. John Bolton is playing chicken with Iran. Beto O'Rourke is planning a relaunch to save his failing campaign. Rashida Tlaib was smeared by Republicans. And Joe Biden can't stop putting his foot in his mouth. And along those lines, he pissed off AOC when he advocated for a middle ground approach with regard to climate change, and she took some shots at him because of it. And he also shared his views on the Republican Party and what he thinks will happen post Donald Trump. And additionally, we'll talk about Alabama's draconian abortion law, and we will close the show by talking about the threat that Donald Trump's administration poses to Iran, and I'll share what progressives Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders have to say about that. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode and some others. Let's go ahead and jump into uh, the news. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib recently appeared on an episode of Skullduggery Podcast, which is part of Yahoo News, and she was asked why she supports a one-state solution, and she's going to give a really thoughtful and nuanced answer, but what she's going to say is going to be supposedly controversial, according to some conservatives. They're going to say that her answer here is, in fact, anti-Semitic. But towards the end of this video, when we get to the controversy and talk about what they took issue with. I'm going to tell you what this is really about because my theory is that this isn't necessarily about anti-Semitism more than it's about foreign policy because what she's saying here is bucking the status quo when it comes to foreign policy and what a politician should be saying when it comes to Israel-Palestine. So we'll listen and then when we come back, we'll talk about the huge debacle uh, that unfolded and this blew up. So, Congresswoman, you've created something of a stir by coming out in favor of a one-state solution in Israel and Palestine. And I think you may be the only Democrat who's publicly supported a one-state solution. So what is your vision for a one-state solution that meets both Palestinian and Israeli or Jewish national aspirations? Absolutely. And let me tell you, I mean, for me, just a few, uh, I think two weeks ago or so, we celebrated 
or just it took a moment, I think, in our country to remember the Holocaust. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, the human dignity, their existence in many ways have been wiped out and some people's passport. I mean, just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy and horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. And I love the fact that it was my ancestors that provided that, right, in many ways. But they did it in a way that took their human dignity away, right? And it was forced on them. And so when I think about uh, one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way where, and I don't want people to do it in the name of Judaism, just like I don't want people to use Islam in that way. It has to be done in a way of values around equality and around the fact that you shouldn't oppress others so that you can feel free and safe. Why can't we all be free and safe together? But a one-state solution with the right of return, I mean, just the math suggests that Jews would become a minority in that state. But Dan, it's not up to us to decide what it looks like, right? Just like when I have my African-American teachers taught me about neighborhoods they couldn't live in, taught me about places they couldn't work. But it's important to understand that separate but equal didn't work here, right? And we have to allow the self-determination to happen there. But for me, that's the lens I bring to it. But I'm not a leader there. But isn't it giving up to say uh, we're just going to the idea of a two-state solution with two independent states that are sovereign and, and independent but and free. I didn't, Aren't you I didn't giving give it that up? up that I didn't dream? give it up. Netanyahu and his party gave it up. And the Israeli government gave it up. Because and it's not worth fighting for anymore. It's, it's, it, it's not me to decide. But just to be it's clear. It's the will of the people. If Netanyahu got up yesterday, tomorrow morning and decides, you know what, I'm going to take down the walls. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, the settlement, I'm not going to expand settlements. Enough is enough. I really want to push towards two-state solution. He has every power every power to do that. So it's evident to me when I hear her give that response that the reason why she supports a one-state solution is because she believes that's the only way that we can actually achieve lasting peace. If you extend suffrage universally to all citizens, if you give Palestinians equal protection under the law and constitutional rights, the same rights that Israelis have, then that's really one way that you can achieve lasting peace. And at this point, arguably, it's the only way that you can achieve lasting peace. But here's a portion that conservatives took issue with. Quote, And there's, you know, this kind of a calming feeling when I think of the Holocaust. Now, if you stop right where I just stopped, obviously that sounds horrible. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust. It sounds like she's saying she takes, you know, uh, this sort of comfort when she thinks about the Holocaust. But obviously, that wasn't the point that she was making, because when you continue reading and you get the full context, it's obvious what she was trying to say. And there's, you know, this kind of a calming feeling when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust. If you just go a little bit further, she says it's a tragedy. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust. And the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, human dignity, all in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post-Holocaust, post the tragedy and horrific persecution 
of Jews across the world at that time. So essentially what she's saying is, even though the Holocaust was a horrible thing, thinking back, I'm glad that my ancestors didn't do what everyone else was doing around the world and in Europe to Jews. I'm glad that they tried to have this safe haven for Jews and welcomed them rather than shunning them or persecuting them. So when you have the full context of what she said, it's not controversial at all. I don't even think it's debatable. And can you guess what portion of her answer there they reported on? The portion that I stopped reading, where if we just clipped out that sentence or half of a sentence, it would sound really horrible, right? Well, that's exactly what they did. So going to this headline from the Washington Examiner, as an example, it reads, Rashida Tlaib says thinking of the Holocaust provides her a calming feeling. Now, if you didn't know about what she said, if you didn't have the full context and you read that headline, wouldn't that be incredibly startling to you? Wouldn't you instinctively think, wow, this Rashida Tlaib person who I know nothing about must be a horrible person? Yeah, so what they're doing here is they are intentionally taking her out of context to make it seem like she's some sort of monster who was pro-Holocaust. So in favor of the Holocaust that thinking about it gives her a calming feeling. They're shameless. Conservative media is absolutely shameless. And I've got another example from the Daily Caller. Rashida Tlaib uses historical inaccuracy to explain why the tragedy of the Holocaust gives her a calming feeling. And of course, besides the Daily Caller and the Washington Examiner, Fox News took the time to spread this smear around even more, which isn't surprising to anyone. But a lot of the outrage really was propelled to a new level once conservatives started to chime in. So Liz Cheney, also took her out of context, saying, here's Rashida Tlaib's direct quote, there's a calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust, and her history of what happened after is a fantasy based on lies spread to delegitimize the state of Israel. So she's legitimizing this smear by saying this is a direct quote, but at the same time, you're not being honest and providing people with the full context because if you go a step further there, just a couple words past where you stopped, you see that she doesn't get a, quote, calming feeling from the Holocaust. Who would? She's saying the calming feeling comes from the fact that her ancestors did not behave in the way that other countries were behaving during the Holocaust. But they don't care. The goal here is to smear, take her out of context, to make her look bad. Now, also, Ben Shapiro says, Rashida Tlaib's comments were, in fact, anti-Semitic. They whitewashed the Jew hatred of Palestinian Arab leadership before, during, and after the Holocaust. She denies the connection between Jews and Israel pre-Holocaust. President Donald Trump tweeted, Democrat Representative Tlaib is being slammed for her horrible and highly insensitive statement on the Holocaust. She obviously has tremendous hatred of Israel and the Jewish people. Can you imagine what would happen if I ever said what she said and says, except you've said way worse than anything she's ever said. Take her most controversial statement, which is arguably we're going to impeach the motherfucker, and your worst statement is like 10 times more reprehensible than that. So obviously, what they're trying to do is they're trying to cultivate outrage in order to smear someone who's going against the grain. It's not that they think this is anti-Semitic, it's that they think that this foreign policy position is completely unacceptable because what we have currently in D.C. is this consensus that you are not allowed to question Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu can build settlements, he can commit 
genocide, murder Palestinian protesters indiscriminately and with impunity. And he doesn't get any backlash from Western countries. We're silent. And if we criticize him, then we're anti-Semitic. So by her saying, by her advocating for a one-state solution, basically she is doing something that you can't do. You can't question the consensus. You can't disagree with the status quo because they have a position. And if you don't accept it, then they will go out of their way to smear you. Now, she responded to all of the backlash saying, policing my words, twisting and turning them to ignite vile attacks on me will not work. All of you who are trying to silence me will fail miserably. I will never allow you to take my words out of context to push your racist and hateful agenda. The truth will always win. Bernie Sanders chimed in to defend her saying, Mr. President, stop dividing the American people up by their religion, their race, or their country of origin, and stop your ugly attacks against Muslim women in Congress. You are taking Representative Tlaib's comments out of context and should apologize. And surprisingly, Nancy Pelosi chimed in saying Republicans' desperate attempts to smear Rashida Tlaib and misrepresent her comments are outrageous. President real Donald Trump and House GOP should apologize to Representative Tlaib and the American people for their gross misrepresentations. Now, credit where it's due for Nancy Pelosi because she essentially took Ilhan Omar and pushed her in front of the bus the last time she made supposedly anti-Semitic comments. But she actually surprisingly did the right thing here and defended Rashida Tlaib, which you have to do. If you are in leadership in the Democratic Party, when you see the opposition disingenuously lobbing this bad faith critique against one of your caucus members, it's incumbent on you to defend her. They obviously brazenly took her out of context because you all listened to the same audio that I listened to. In no way was she doing pro-Holocaust apologia. She was talking about something else. She was making a very different point. But by taking her out of context, they can make it seem as if, oh, another Muslim woman seems to hate Jews. And it's disgusting. So ask yourself why this is continuously happening to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Obviously, it's because they're Muslim women. But most importantly, it's because they're saying things that you're not supposed to say. In Washington, D.C., you are not supposed to question our foreign policy consensus. Look at Tulsi Gabbard and the way that she was treated when she went to Syria. She's being smeared as an Assad apologist. You can't buck orthodoxy when it comes to D.C. foreign policy. And I think Kyle Kalinske nails that in this tweet, saying, if you sincerely think Ilhan is pro-9-11 and Tlaib is pro-Holocaust, you're a giant idiot or total liar. The first two Muslim women in Congress are repeatedly and viciously smeared by bad faith actors so the right can play gotcha. And because these two brave women threaten foreign policy status quo, that is precisely what's happening. Nobody would really care about them if they weren't saying things that got people to think about Israel policy and Israel-Palestine in a different way. Nobody's really thought about how our foreign policy and policy with regard to Israel is hurting Palestinians until now because we have two Muslim women in Congress. We have a Palestinian woman telling us how our policies are hurting other people around the world. That's ultimately what I think this is about, but certainly it doesn't help that there is a very large portion of the Republican Party base that is anti-Muslim, that feel uneasy with the fact that there are two Muslim women now serving in Congress, which is why they go out of their way 
to smear them. So this is nothing more than another bad faith attack. And if you think this will end here, this will be a trend. Republicans will keep doing this to Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib so long as they continue to speak truth to power. And it may be disgusting and demoralizing now, but I truly believe that when we look back at this and read about this in the history books, we're going to think about how ridiculous this was and how horribly the first two Muslim women were treated, all because we didn't want to actually do something to jeopardize this relationship that we have with Israel because they're in a geopolitically advantageous position in the Middle East and North Africa, and we want to be able to have sway over the region, so that means we empower one of our allies there. It's disgusting, but it's not surprising. It's hilarious to me that not that long ago, DC elites, pundits, were all telling us that Beto O'Rourke was going to be a force to be reckoned with in 2020. One article that stood out to me is an article by David Ferris, I believe, from The Week, which claimed Beto is the new Bernie, and it also featured this cursed image, which I am assuming still haunts thousands of people. But nonetheless, Beto O'Rourke launched his 2020 campaign, and it's not going too well. They were all wrong, unsurprisingly. And when you look at some of these images that his campaign has been posting, it's easy to see that there isn't as much momentum as many DC elites predicted there would be. And I mean, these showings aren't necessarily terrible. He's got a couple hundred people at various events. But when you juxtapose these images with images of Bernie Sanders campaign rallies, where he's getting thousands of people, well, it's obvious that their prediction didn't quite pan out because they told us that Beto O'Rourke would cut into Bernie Sanders' grassroots fundraising. Sure, Bernie can raise millions of dollars by small donors, but Beto O'Rourke is going to eat into that because there's this overlap between Beto and Bernie's bases, and certainly, you know, um, he's going to undercut Bernie Sanders' grassroots appeal. That's not happening. And Beto's own staff and himself really realize that this isn't actually happening. So what are they doing now that his campaign is going nowhere and it has essentially hit a brick wall? He is relaunching and he's giving himself a political makeover, essentially, because as Will Weissert and Steve Peoples of AP News reports, Beto O'Rourke plans reintroduction as 2020 buzz fizzles. <laughs> Amazing. Now, before we get into the article, stop and think about that. 2020 buzz fizzles. There's already articles being written like this and it's May. He just launched in March. Now, I expected his campaign to fizzle, but I would have never predict predicted that it would have been this soon. Like, I would have expected that maybe after the debates, he's going to kind of fizzle out when people see him on the debate stage and see that he's not very strong and that he doesn't really bring, you know, any policy ideas to the table and he's a platitude machine, but he is already fizzling. That is surprising to me, who had zero confidence in Beto O'Rourke. So it goes to show you what a horrible candidate he is. And I don't even know why if you can't gain any momentum this early, you wouldn't just drop out. Because if you could acknowledge that you need to relaunch just a couple of months after launching your campaign, when there are 
more than 20 other people in the race? I mean, why waste your time? Just drop out. But nonetheless, here's what they say about the relaunch of Beto O'Rourke's campaign. Beto O'Rourke barreled into the 2020 presidential race with breakneck energy and a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants campaign style that saw him leap atop tables to address overflow crowds with the organic, off-the-cuff candor that had made him a Texas sensation. But since his mid-March campaign launch, the buzz surrounding the former congressman has evaporated. Competing in a massive field of Democratic White House hopefuls, O'Rourke has sagged in the polls. He's made few promises that resonated or produced headline-grabbing moments, instead driving around the country meeting with voters at mostly small events. In a tacit recognition that this approach isn't working, O'Rourke is planning to try again, taking a hands-on role in staging a reintroduction ahead of the next month's premier Democratic presidential debate. As he finalizes his plans, O'Rourke has entered an intentional, quiet period to build out campaign infrastructure, according to an advisor who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the campaign strategy. This, to me, I almost feel bad for him. Like, I don't feel bad because he kind of brought this upon himself by being completely vacuous and devoid of any policy substance whatsoever. But I mean, to relaunch this soon, it's like, it's cringeworthy. That's what it is. It's cringeworthy. I mean, at what point do you just give up and realize out of all of these presidential hopefuls, if I'm not gaining any momentum, maybe we call it quits. Because there's certainly a number of candidates who aren't polling very well that are still building momentum, but they're building nonetheless. Even if it may be, you know, a small amount of momentum, they're still building. But Beto had a really huge launch, and then he's fizzling, he's going down. It's embarrassing. Now, they're not actually admitting, like, his campaign, his top aides, anyways, are not saying this is Beto 2.0, you know, the relaunch. They're not saying that. They're trying to be a little bit coy. They're trying to downplay it. But nonetheless, Beto himself kind of acknowledged that he had a rough start, saying, I think, in part, I was just trying to keep up when I first started out. <laughs> Yikes. So what I would do if I were in Beto's position is one, we come out swinging with policy. We get new advisors because obviously the people who have been advising him aren't working out well for him. And you come up with a very precise message because when you think about Beto O'Rourke, what does he stand for? He's in favor of some policies that I like. He wants to legalize marijuana nationwide, but there are other candidates who also have taken that position. Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, so why would you opt for someone else when there are other people in the race that offer what he offers, but more? So what exactly will be the strategy with the uh, so-called Beto 2.0 relaunch? Well, first of all, they acknowledge that he hasn't been making enough media appearances. Like, there's been this self-imposed blackout almost where he won't go on news shows he won't be interviewed he hasn't had a cnn town hall i'm sure that they invited him but he hasn't appeared on one but that's one of the first things that they're starting to change so he's appearing on the rachel maddow show by the time you see this he'll already have appeared he's also appearing on abc's the view so that's one area where they are changing now what's the other thing that they're going to change they're actually going to produce a policy platform. You'd think that that would have been a priority 
To begin with, you'd think that a specific policy would have been the catalyst for a presidential campaign. Like, think about some of these other candidates. Tulsi Gabbard got in the race because she cares deeply about foreign policy. Bernie Sanders got in the race because he cares deeply about Medicare for all and taking on the billionaire class. Conversely, Beto O'Rourke got in the race because he was just born to be in it, according to him. It's so amazing. Yeah, that's just not going to inspire people. This isn't about you. If you're running for president, this is about us. This is about the American people. And Beto O'Rourke just doesn't get that. He's in this for the name recognition. He's in this to become a celebrity, to build his national profile. And it's embarrassing. You just lost your Senate race. Why would you choose to then seek a higher position in government after you couldn't even beat the guy who lost to the person you ultimately want to run against. I mean, it makes no sense to me. So if I were Beto O'Rourke, I would also hire new advisors because that's something that's desperately needed. And I would also consider really suspending the campaign because really this is a waste of time. If you're already having to relaunch after a couple of months, usually at the beginning of your campaign, that momentum will be sustained for a little while. But I mean, if it's already fizzling, if the momentum is already dying, this is a horrible sign of what's to come. So, I mean, maybe the relaunch will help him, but you should have really put policy front and center from the beginning, but he didn't do that because he doesn't care about policy. He doesn't really have a core ideology. He's just, you know, instinctively conservative and he wants to run because he's born to be in it. Embarrassing. Um, if I had to guess and make a prediction, I'd say that this probably won't help him. But if he really does come out swinging with policies, maybe it could. But I mean, just the fact that he has to do a relaunch or a soft relaunch, whatever they want to frame this as, is downright embarrassing. Joe Biden has been running for president now for about three or so weeks, and he has already said numerous things to piss off various groups of people unsurprisingly. But what I want you to realize is that this is not something that is a new phenomenon for Joe Biden. It's not like he has recently become a, a gaffe machine. He has always had a penchant for saying things that don't go over too well, making dumb, insensitive comments and saying things really that, generally speaking, as a politician, you might want to keep to yourself. So to give you an example of this, back in the day when he was first getting into politics, he talked about how his first instinct was to sell out and try to court big donors. Take a look. See, I went to the big guys for the money. I was ready to prostitute myself in the, man the manner in which I talk about it. But what happened was they said, come back when you're 40, son. Spoiler alert, as you all know, he went on to actually win over big donors and he already won them over for 2020 because if you'll recall, when he launched his 2020 campaign, who was it that held a fundraiser for Joe Biden? A Comcast executive who is against net neutrality. These big donors, they're not just holding these fundraisers for Joe Biden because they like the way that he speaks and they think that he has leadership qualities. The reason why they're trying to win over Joe Biden is because they want him to carry out their policy preferences. So if a Comcast executive who is part of a company that lobbies to do away with regulating the internet, net neutrality, how do you think that's going to impact Joe Biden? He's going to be influenced to pick up the phone if they call. And you don't have to take my word for it because Joe Biden actually explained very thoroughly back in 2008 the effect that big donors have on politicians. Listen to what he says here. Lobbyists aren't bad people. Special interest groups are not bad people. 
But guess what? They're corrosive. People who accept the money from them aren't bad people, but it's human nature. You go out, Lynn, and bundle $250,000 for me, all legal, and then you call me after I'm elected and say, Joe, I'd like to come and talk to you about something. <laughs> you didn't buy me, but it's human nature. You helped me. I'm going to say, sure, Lynn, come on in. So he explained there very specifically how big donors get people to be on their side. It's just human nature. They help you get elected, and then in return, you want to return the favor. You want to pick up the phone when they call. That's who Joe Biden is. So who do you think he's going to listen to if he gets elected as president? You or the Comcast executives who threw fundraisers for him? Now, you don't have to look very far because just last year, well, this is what he had to say in response to millennials who were vocalizing their problems. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. So when millennials want him to take our issues seriously, his response is, give me a break. However, if a big donor gives him a call, you didn't buy me, but it's human nature. You helped me. I'm going to say, sure, Lynn, come on in. So what you need to understand is that Joe Biden is nothing more than a conduit for special interests. And if you elect him, you're not even electing a person. You're electing an empty suit. You're electing a vacuous vessel that will be filled with the policy preferences of special interests. He's not getting in there because he has this vision for America, because if he does, he certainly hasn't articulated that vision. He's getting in there to the, do the bidding of his big donors. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's what he says happens when you take money from big donors. And if he knows the influence that big donors have, and he thinks that that's corrosive, you'd think that he would instinctively not take their money. Do something like Bernie Sanders. Because he has a big enough name, he has enough name recognition to where he could plausibly fundraise based exclusively on small dollar donations, but he's choosing not to do that, knowing that these big donors will affect his views. So he's someone who doesn't have a spine, he really doesn't have seemingly any underlying moral philosophy, and he also has made horrible decisions that didn't just lead to more corruption, but led to death and destruction, because Joe Biden, let me remind you, is someone who voted for the Iraq War. He came from the administration that turned Libya into a failed state. He just recently greenlit Donald Trump's meddling in Venezuela, and he has the instinct to do really horrible things. And we know this because when he was talking about North Korea before, look at what he said. If we have evidence that they are building a missile defense, a missile system, an offensive system with a nuclear capacity and they will not negotiate with us, I would support a unilateral strike to take them out. So in the event North Korea were to develop defensive nuclear weapons, I mean offensive nuclear weapons, as they did, he is admitting there that what would be on the table is mass genocide of North Korea. War crimes. Because he knows that in the event they were to develop nuclear weapons back then, it would be obviously for defensive purposes. And they did end up developing nuclear weapons for defensive purposes. And it's kind of been working at dissuading the United States from getting involved directly because they know that that would threaten our ally in South Korea. But what Joe Biden would have done 
is commit a war crime in North Korea. He said that in the open. He admitted that he would do something like that. So he has the instinct to do bad things without thinking about the consequences and commit war crimes. But it shouldn't surprise you because he actually really has an affinity for war criminals. So why wouldn't he want to replicate their strategy? And I'm not joking about that. This is what he said about Dick Cheney. I actually like Dick Cheney for real. I, I get on with him. I think he's a decent man. Dick Cheney is a war criminal who should be rotting in prison until the day he dies. But Joe Biden thinks he's a decent person. So if he thinks that Dick Cheney is a decent human being, then it's not going to surprise you to learn that he also thinks that a vehemently anti-gay theocrat, Mike Pence, is also a decent person. It was followed on by a guy who's a decent guy, our vice president. The point that I'm trying to make here and showing you all of these clips is that Joe Biden can't help himself. He is constantly putting his foot in his mouth. And this is by no means a comprehensive list. We didn't talk about Anita Hill. We didn't even talk about his history on segregation. We didn't talk about the comments he made just last week where he said at a rally that he didn't have time to talk about healthcare or college. So what I'm trying to communicate to you is if you end up going with someone like Joe Biden, if he faces off against Donald Trump in a general election, understand what you're doing. You are nominating someone who is a liability because odds are he'll say something dumb during the general, piss people off, and then they won't want to vote for him. And then we get another four years of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, in spite of all of his gaffes and stupid statements, has a 90% approval rating from the Republican Party's base. So he can say stupid things and that won't hurt him. But the same is not true for Joe Biden. If he says something stupid, that could theoretically end up hurting him. So the point is, if you nominate Joe Biden and you don't like Donald Trump, you're playing with fire. Now, again, it's not just that he said all, all of these bad things in the past. He keeps saying stupid things. For example, just this last week, this is what he said when it comes to climate change. According to Valerie Volsevici of Reuters, presidential hopeful Biden looking for, quote, middle ground on climate policy. So just pause for a moment and think about what that looks like. What is middle ground when the middle ground is between Democrats who believe in climate change and Republicans who literally believe that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese? How do you possibly get middle ground between those two concepts? One party wants to take action, even if it's meager action, but action nonetheless. They believe in anthropogenic climate change, and another party doesn't believe in climate change at all. So even if you meet them halfway, they're still winning because they're getting you to not take action that is needed to stop climate catastrophe. So as Reuters reports, Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden is crafting a climate change policy he hopes will appeal to both environmentalists and the blue collar voters who elected Donald Trump, according to two sources, carving out a middle ground approach that will likely face heavy resistance from green activists. The backbone of U.S. policy will likely include the United States rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and preserving U.S. regulations on emissions and vehicle fuel efficiency that Trump has 
sought to undo, according to one of the sources, Heather Zickel, who is part of a team advising Biden on climate change. She previously advised President Barack Obama. The second source, a former Energy Department official advising Biden's campaign, who asked not to be named, said the policy could be supportive of nuclear energy and fossil fuel options like natural gas and carbon capture technology, which limit emissions from coal plants and other industrial facilities. A spokesman for Biden's campaign, T.J. Ducklow, declined to comment on Biden's emergent climate policy or his advisors, but said Biden takes climate change seriously. Joe Biden has called climate change an existential threat, and as vice president was instrumental in orchestrating the Paris Climate Accord, Ducklow said in an emailed statement. So let's be extra charitable here. In the event Joe Biden were elected and he rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, would that be an improvement from Donald Trump? Obviously, that would be the case. However, back in the day when Obama signed on to the Paris Climate Accord, it still didn't go far enough. And there were numerous small island countries who protested because it didn't go far enough. However, times have changed. We now have more data available. The IPCC just last year said we have 12 years to take substantial action in order to avert climate catastrophe in order to stop a two degree Celsius increase from happening. And Joe Biden, in trying to seek out middle ground and just doing what we did before, which wasn't enough, that's terrifying. Because what that means is if Joe Biden is elected president, we very well may not actually be able to save the planet. We may take incremental steps towards limiting greenhouse gas emissions, but by and large, it's not going to be enough. So this, obviously, is another thing that pisses off people and would make him a liability because climate change is a, is a very serious issue. And if you don't put front and center a really bold and ambitious policy, what do you think is going to happen? Young voters, millennials, Gen Zers, they will be dissuaded from voting because you've got to understand voting is a chore people don't want to waste hours waiting in line coming out to vote for someone who they think will be just nominally better than donald trump so a lot of the time they stay home and i don't like that this is a reality but it is a reality nonetheless there's a large portion of voters that don't come out to vote and what he's failing to realize here is that young voters they can often make or break elections so by not taking an issue that we care about seriously he's proving what a liability he'd be against Donald Trump. Give me a break. So Joe Biden would be potentially a disaster if he won the nomination. And liberals currently should be doing everything in their power to defeat Joe Biden. Because if he wins, this is a lose for progressives and potentially a win for Republicans. Joe Biden is going to be asked in this clip I'm about to show you about Medicare for All, a policy that more than 70% of Americans support and a majority now of Republicans support at 52%. Here's what he's going to say to justify his unwillingness to support Medicare for All. He's essentially going to make word salad. Take a look. What do you say to calls for some sort of universal health care? or something like Medicare for All from some of the other people running well, the Democratic I, look, primary. I, I, I think they're, they're well-intended. I think they mean it, and it's not, I'm not. But here's the deal. Um, right now, you have, 60 per, you have this overwhelming number of employers who are paying into the health care plan. Why let them off the hook? 
all of a sudden they don't have to pay anything? What happens then to this whole thing about profit and the rest? I mean, it is, should be part of the compensation if you have it. That was an incredibly idiotic justification as to why he does not support Medicare for All. Because, quote, you have an overwhelming number of employers paying into a healthcare plan. Why let them off the hook? So his justification is this is a benefit that employers should be providing. They give you money, but another part of compensation for your labor should be that they offer you health care. Okay, I don't agree with that, but it's one justification. But he then switches gears abruptly. He says all of a sudden they don't have to pay anything. What happens then to this whole thing about profit? So he talks about, okay, well, we should have let employers off the hook. But then what happens to this whole thing about profit? I genuinely don't know what he's trying to say here. Like, I thought about this and I tried to interpret what he was saying. I don't know what he's trying to say. What happens to this whole thing about profit? What are you talking about? I don't get what you're trying to say, Joe. He's making word salad here and he's trying to make it seem as if he has this reasonable justification for not supporting Medicare for all. But this is not persuasive. In fact, this whole thing about profit is not even coherent. So why is he saying this? Why is he opting for employers to be the ones to bear the burden of something that governments deal with in basically every other developed country? Well, because a lot of unions don't like the notion of Medicare for all being approved because that's one way that they can kind of demonstrate their value to workers by getting employers to offer more healthcare benefits. So what he's kind of doing here is a wink and a nod to unions and I support unions. Joe Biden doesn't actually support unions because he associates himself with union busters. But if you're going to give a little bit of a wink and a nod to unions, wouldn't you be better off by proving that you support them by not teaming up with union busters, Joe Biden? Now, he claims, why should we let employers off the hook when it comes to health care? Why shouldn't they provide workers with health care? Well, in a system where health care is not guaranteed, where it's not free at the point of service, sure, I think it's incumbent on employers to fill that gap that isn't being filled by government. But why should we be letting government off the hook? That's the question that we really should be asking because government already provides us with a number of services. We give them our tax dollars and in return, they provide us with a military that will protect us from external threats. They give us drinkable water, theoretically. They provide us with breathable air. So why shouldn't healthcare also be something that they guarantee for us? Furthermore, a problem and really a flaw in thinking that it's important for us to have an employer-based healthcare system is that not all jobs offer healthcare. So if you're not going to mandate that every single employer offer healthcare, then this really isn't a persuasive argument to make because not every single job will offer healthcare and there will still be millions of people who will be left out. Furthermore, people who have an employer that does offer healthcare, well, maybe they offer healthcare that is shitty or maybe they offer healthcare alternatively that is good, but the job itself is horrible. Maybe that individual hates that job, but they feel as if they can't leave that job and they're stuck with their employer because if they leave, then they'd lose healthcare. Why can't you just admit 
that the reason why you don't support Medicare for all, Joe, is because you are in the tank of the health insurance industry. They're betting on Joe Biden to save them from the momentum that we see for Medicare for all. They're betting on Joe Biden to save them from Bernie Sanders, who they are terrified of currently, who they are increasing benefits because they don't want him to kill them. You want to protect health insurance companies. That's what this is about. That is precisely what this is about. But he's too much of a coward to admit it. He's about protecting the profits of for-profit health insurance companies who don't actually care about the delivery of health care. They care about profits. They have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value. Whereas if government handled health care, well, they wouldn't have a goal to increase profit, to make revenue. Their one goal would be to deliver healthcare, which is why, theoretically speaking, you want the government to handle healthcare and not employers to handle healthcare. Because if employers handle healthcare, then that means that health insurance companies are still going to be responsible for the delivery of healthcare. And their motives conflict with what the American people need, which is healthcare. And Joe Biden either doesn't get that or he doesn't care. I bet it's probably a little bit of both. But either way, his answer here is incredibly ignorant and it's not persuasive. And it's one of the many reasons why he must be defeated. Because if you're not going to come to the table with any new ideas that would excite the base, you are playing with fire. You are a liability going up against Donald Trump, who's betting on low turnout to win. So if Democrats and liberals have any sense, they will avoid voting for Joe Biden. Otherwise, you risk another four years of Donald Trump. Because if Joe Biden is the nominee, I worry about his chances against Donald Trump. Could he win? Possibly. But is it very likely that he could lose? Yeah. In fact, currently, I'd suspect that he would most likely lose. Because we just put up a centrist in 2016 and she lost. And from what we're seeing in this early stage of his campaign, Joe Biden is more out of touch than Hillary Clinton, which is almost unfathomable to me. But he's more out of touch than Hillary Clinton. We've got to defeat him. Otherwise, Donald Trump will defeat all of us on the left in 2020. On a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, Tulsi Gabbard was there for her second appearance, and she's already been a leader when it comes to this issue of Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and this broader issue relating to civil liberties and how little by little our civil liberties are being eroded. So she talks about it here and she makes not just a strong argument for why it was important for what Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, and Edward Snowden did, but she then says what she would do as president. So the first thing I want to show you is what she says about Julian Assange, because this is incredibly strong. She is very clear in making the case as to why we should all be against the arrest and extradition of Julian Assange, not necessarily because we like Julian Assange as a person, but because this has broader implications that go beyond Julian Assange and the 2016 election. Take a look. What happened with the with his arrest and all this stuff that just went down, um, I think, poses a great threat to our freedom of the press and to our freedom of speech. If we look at what happened under the previous administration, under Obama, 
you know, they were trying to find ways to go after Assange and WikiLeaks, but ultimately they chose not to seek to extradite him or charge him because they recognized what a slippery slope that begins when you have a government in a position to uh, levy criminal uh, charges and consequences against someone who's publishing information or saying things that the government doesn't want you to say. The government doesn't, sharing information the government doesn't want you to share. And so the fact that the Trump administration has chosen um, to ignore that fact, to ignore how important it is that we uphold our freedoms, freedom of the press and freedom of speech and go after him, it has a very chilling effect on both journalists and publishers. And you can look to both those in the traditional media, but also those in new media. Uh, and also on on every one of us as American, it was it was a, a kind of a warning call, saying, "Look what happened to this guy. It could happen to you. It could happen to any one of us." So that, in my view, was important. If you are a leader, what you need to do is educate people because individuals in the United States they they just they don't know about this particular issue. They're bombarded with propaganda from the mainstream media, and so it's just embedded in them that they have to hate Julian Assange. But this isn't even about Julian Assange. He was arrested because of the 2010 Chelsea Manning leaks. And what's really odd to me is that people have this visceral reaction. Like I actually attended a town hall just a couple of weeks ago with my senator Jeff Merkley, and I asked the question to him about Julian Assange and Trump's administration possibly extraditing him to the United States. And I asked what his opinion was and what he could possibly do as a U.S. senator to kind of influence the situation and protect civil liberties. He completely dodged the question. And I like Jeff Merkley. This is someone who is relatively progressive, or in fact, very progressive, you could argue. Nonetheless, he dodges the question and he kind of gave me this generic response about, well, you know, this is really a balance between national security and civil liberties and how we balance that as a country. It wasn't a great answer. But one thing that also struck me is that when I was asking the question and when Chelsea Manning's name and Julian Assange's name came out of my mouth, the people in front of me, they literally scoffed as if I said Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies. Like, it was so weird to me that people just instinctively are against Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. But I think this is because they're not educated, because the mainstream media hasn't been doing their job. And you'd think mainstream media cable news shows would want to do their job because this affects them. If they were to publish leaks that were obtained illegally, they could be penalized if we set this new precedent where Julian Assange is prosecuted. So you think mainstream media would do their part and educate people, but they're not doing that. But with Tulsi Gabbard here, what she did and why it was so important was she educated people about this. People don't get it. They just think, oh, well, you know what? He leaked information about Hillary Clinton in 2016. He leaked the DNC emails and he didn't leak the Republican RNC emails. So obviously he's a Republican Party shill but he's being prosecuted because of the leaks in 2010. He published the Manning leaks, which exposed war crimes that our government was committing. And that's what Tulsi Gabbard communicates here as clear as day. And she's doing a phenomenal job and she is being a leader on this issue. Now, she also talked about Edward Snowden, which politicians seem to not want to touch with a 10-foot pole, but she does a fantastic job explaining why his leaks were monumental. I don't think we, you know, I, I remember the very day that I woke up uh, in DC 
looked at my phone, started looking through the headlines and saw those headlines about how the NSA was mass surveilling all of us and collecting our phone records, collecting our cell phone records and Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. And I was, I was shocked. So that was something that Snowden uncovered uh, and released, uh, something that I don't know that even as members of Congress, we would have been aware of. So now that we were aware of it, then, hey, we can take action to, to f- close those loopholes, to change those policies, to protect our civil liberties, to protect our Fourth Amendment constitutional rights as Americans. But was the NSA going to disclose that information voluntarily on their own? Absolutely not. That was phenomenal absolutely phenomenal and it's one of these issues that bugs me because even the most progressive politicians they won't speak out forcefully about edward snowden what he did there was heroic he is a hero for what he did he exposed the nsa and them spying on the american people without a warrant our civil liberties can be eroded willy-nilly and nobody will really care and part of the problem is that you can't care if you don't know what's at stake. And people genuinely are not educated, which which is why I think it's so important for someone like Tulsi Gabbard to speak about this because nobody knows what's at stake and why the Snowden leaks were so important and why the Manning leaks were so important. So what Tulsi Gabbard is doing here is a public service. She is educating people. Now, education is one really important component, but what really matters is the policy prescription that she's offering. Now, Joe Rogan asked her what she would do in the event she were elected president with regard to Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. What she says here is fantastic. What would you do about Julian Assange? What would you do about Edward Snowden? Uh, As far as undoing, dropping the charges. If you're president of the world right now, what do you do? Dropping the charges. You drop the charges, but... They're still going after him for something from Sweden uh, in Julian Assange's case. Yeah. And so Edward Snowden would be the only one that you would be able to, right? Because unless you would influence... Well, the the charges that the Trump administration is... um, uh, Putting on Julian Assange. Right, exactly. And and it remains to be seen whether or not they will push for extradition. Edward Snowden, what he's doing right now is essentially living day-to-day, holed up in Russia, in hiding. Mm-hmm. And w- the charges against him stem from again this illegal operation. That yeah. He, in many ways, he's very patriotic. I mean, he let us know, and at at great cost. Yeah. So you would give him a pardon. Yeah, yeah. And I think address. We've got to address why he did the things the way that he did them. Mm-hmm. And you hear the same thing from Chelsea Manning. How. There is not there is not an actual channel for whistleblowers like them to bring forward information that exposes egregious abuses of our constitutional rights and liberties. Um, period. I mean, there's there was not a channel for that to happen in a real way, and that's why they ended up taking the path that they did and suffering the consequences. That was great. That was absolutely great. She would drop the charges against Julian Assange and pardon Edward Snowden. That's fantastic. She is the first politician besides Mike Gravel to unequivocally say, I would pardon Edward Snowden. I would drop the charges against Julian Assange. We wouldn't opt for extradition. 
She can't control what the British government does, but as U.S. president, she can control how we respond to Julian Assange. And since he's not a U.S. citizen, she can't pardon him. She doesn't have that authority, obviously. So what she can say is, we're not going to pursue him. She can also say, we're not going to pursue Chelsea Manning. She is pardoned. I mean, Obama already commuted her sentence, but she can choose as leader to not pursue Chelsea Manning, and she can pardon Edward Snowden, just full stop. This is really strong. This is incredibly powerful. So this goes to show you what type of president she would be when it comes to this issue of civil liberties, civil rights. And I'm going to link you to the full clip in the description box because she goes on to talk about the FISA court and how this is basically a rubber stamp to violate civil liberties. This was a phenomenal portion of the Joe Rogan podcast. I haven't watched all of it yet, but I did see this particular clip. It's about 13 minutes long, I want to say. She does an amazing job here at laying all of this out. And she's someone who, even if you don't support her as your number one, you want to build her up. Because in the event Bernie or Warren becomes the nominee, I would like to see Warren or Gabbard, excuse me, in the future administration. Because if she's in the next Democratic Party administration, then we know that the standard that she would be pushing for is to protect whistleblowers, is to uphold the Constitution and American civil liberties. And people may not care about this, but regardless if you like it or not, or want to acknowledge it or not, if you want to live in a democracy, then if we don't abide by the Constitution, if we don't protect our civil liberties, that doesn't just mean that the Constitution is being eroded, but democracy itself is being eroded. And for whatever reason, there's only one person that seems to get that, and it's Tulsi Gabbard. So kudos to her. Phenomenal uh, interview here. Great portion of the podcast. I look forward to watching the rest of it because this here is really strong. She is coming out swinging on this issue and it really sets her apart from everyone else who is unwilling to speak about this issue or is saying things that aren't great about this issue. There's been other presidential candidates who are basically just siding with the establishment narrative when it comes to Julian Assange at least and will remain silent when it comes to Edward Snowden. But what she's saying here is that we need to reverse course. It's time we actually protect whistleblowers. And that's incredibly powerful. So last week on the program, we talked about our government's escalation with Iran, and they insisted, based on dubious Israeli intelligence, that Iran or one of its allies or proxies was planning some sort of attack on the U.S. or one of its allies. And since then, since they escalated, the situation has grown increasingly intense And now I'm officially worried, because when you have someone like John Bolton in Trump's ear, who is now steering the ship, this can easily become a bloody situation. So I'm going to tell you why this is so scary. But first, I'm going to show you a clip from ABC News, which is mostly objective. They give you the rundown in a really concise manner. And then we'll talk about what happened after this. Tonight, amid growing tension with Iran, calls of sabotage near the world's most important oil trading route. Four oil tankers targeted near the entrance to the Persian Gulf. Video showing a gash in one ship's stern at the waterline, appearing like it was rammed or hit by a projectile. It comes just days after the U.S. warned commercial vessels in the region that Iran and or its regional proxies could target commercial sea traffic. And one week after the U.S. sent a carrier strike group and B-52 bombers to the Gulf because of fears of possible Iranian attacks on U.S. forces. But there is no evidence 
evidence at this point that Iran was involved in the sabotage of these ships. Even President Trump cautious about blaming Iran, although he did issue a warning. It's going to be a bad problem for Iran if something happens, I can tell you that. They're not going to be happy. Martha Raddatz with us live tonight from our Washington bureau. And Martha, still no word on whether Iran could have been behind the attack on those tankers? Well, David, we have now been told initial assessments have determined it was likely Iran or Iranian proxies using explosives. The U.S. military is now helping in the investigation. Iran, of course, denying any involvement. But with four ships sabotage, there was a level of sophistication, David. So that clip was objective for the most part. But towards the end, they kind of planted that seed that this has to be Iran. I mean, come on. This was a sophisticated attack. So obviously it was Iran. Now, there's talk that maybe this is Houthi rebels, which is an Iranian proxy, but let's just be extra kind to them when we shouldn't be kind, but let's be charitable. Let's assume that they're right and this is Iran, and let's say it's Iran itself. Does this justify regime change or war with Iran? Does this justify the hundreds of thousands of deaths that would inevitably ensue if we choose to invade Iran or attack Iran because of this? No, of course it doesn't. Because during the Iraq war, we were told that an attack on U.S. soil was imminent if we did not invade Iraq because Saddam Hussein was allegedly building weapons of mass destruction. And now that same argument essentially is being used to justify regime change in Iran. They want to get a nuclear weapon. They're planning an attack on the United States or its allies. And look at this. Inexplicably, there was an attack. It must be Iran. We can't confirm, but it must be Iran. Regardless if we like it or not, the United States is taking steps to escalate even further. And as Eric Schmidt and Julian E. Barnes of the New York Times reports, at a meeting of President Trump's top national security aides last Thursday, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan presented an updated military plan that envisions sending as many as 120,000 troops to the Middle East should Iran attack American forces or accelerate work on nuclear weapons, administration officials said. The revisions were ordered by hardliners led by John R. Bolton, Mr. Trump's national security advisor. They do not call for a land invasion of Iran, which would require vastly more troops, officials said. The development reflects the influence of Mr. Bolton, one of the administration's most virulent Iran hawks, whose push for confrontation with Tehran was ignored more than a decade ago by President George W. Bush. It is highly uncertain whether Mr. Trump, who has sought to disentangle the United States from Afghanistan, Afghanistan and Syria ultimately would send so many American forces back to the Middle East. It is also unclear whether the president has been briefed on the number of troops or other details in the plans. So just pause for a moment and think about how crazy this is. A massive escalation is taking place under Donald Trump's nose and he may not even know that it's happening. As commander in chief, he may not even know what John Bolton is doing. And let me remind you that the person who's in charge currently, who's escalating, said this back in 2017. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. So John Bolton's regime change aspirations are now 
long overdue. He wanted to celebrate the overthrow of the current Iranian regime back in 2019 or before 2019. But it's now 2019. So it's long overdue. He's been salivating over the thought of regime change in Iran now for decades. And now that he has a useful idiot as commander-in-chief, he may very well be able to unilaterally escalate to the point of a hot war with Iran. This is incredibly terrifying. Now, in spite of what John Bolton is doing, Trump doesn't realize what's happening. In fact, just last week, he said this about potentially striking a deal with Iran. What I'd like to see with Iran... I'd like to see them call me. What they should be doing is calling me up, sitting down. We can make a deal, a fair deal. We just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Not too much to ask. So in other words, he wants some type of deal with Iran that would prevent them from getting nuclear weapons, that would allow the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in periodically to inspect, to make sure that they are complying with the terms of the deal. Basically, he wants something that looks like the Iran deal. Donald Trump is a complete fucking moron. He is a moron. This is why John Bolton, in spite of whatever non-interventionist instincts Trump may have, is able to take advantage of Donald Trump's idiocy. Because he has no idea what he's doing. In fact, he didn't even realize that he was doing the bidding of bloodthirsty neocons like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton when he chose to rip up the Iran deal. Because previously, he's actually vocalized concerns about Obama potentially starting a war with Iran, but ripping up the Iran deal because it was supposedly bad because Obama did it opened the doors to regime change in Iran and made it that much more likely that the war hawks in his own administration would be able to escalate further. And now people in his own administration are doing it under his nose without his consent as commander in chief. And he's talking about some type of a deal. It's infuriating. Donald Trump is too stupid to realize what's happening. Now, if you're still one of the people who are worried about the quote-unquote threat that Iran poses to us, understand this, they don't pose a threat to us. They don't pose a threat to our allies. They don't pose a threat to Israel. Because Israel is a country that actually has nuclear weapons. So why would Iran be suicidal enough to try to do anything like that? And if you believe that it was Iran or an Iranian proxy that actually did carry out this attack which I'm skeptical, let's just recall what happened back in 2002 when we were building the case for regime change in Iraq. The same things they said about Iraq then are the same things they're saying about Iran now. And I'll leave you with that and allow you to decide on your own whether or not you should be skeptical here. And we know that Iraq is continuing to finance terror and gives assistance to groups that use terrorism to undermine Middle East peace. The Iranian regime continues to fuel conflict, terror, and turmoil throughout the Middle East and beyond. Many nations are joining us in insisting that Saddam Hussein's regime be held accountable. Iran will be held accountable. The danger is already significant, and it only grows worse with time. This is a threat to the region and a threat to the world, and it gets worse day by day by day. The same tyrant has tried to dominate the Middle East 
and Iran's ambition to dominate the Middle East remains. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. Regime change in Iraq is the only certain means of removing a great, nat a great danger to our nation. And therefore, the only solution is to change the regime itself. Because I really do believe we will be greeted as liberators. Freedom is right around the corner. So we've been talking about the escalation between the United States and Iran over the course of the last couple of weeks, and I told you about a plan that was devised by John Bolton, who is Donald Trump's national security advisor, to send 120,000 troops to the Middle East to essentially intimidate Iran. Now, at the time I told you about that plan, it was unclear about whether or not Donald Trump even knew about this plan, and whether or not John Bolton was doing all of this and escalating and saber-rattling under Donald Trump's nose, unbeknownst to him. But as of now, Donald Trump is aware of the plan. I don't know if he knew about it at the time when Bolton was pushing it, but nonetheless, he knows now and he is denying that they were uh, even considering this. But it's funny because as he denies that they wanted to escalate with Iran, he still manages to threaten them. We have not planned for that. Hopefully we're not going to have to plan for that. And if we did that, we'd send a hell of a lot more troops than that. So every single time he denounces the prospect of war with Iran, he manages to simultaneously raise the stakes. It's like he is incapable and doesn't know how to not be belligerent. If you don't want war with Iran, Trump, then stop raising the stakes. Because on one hand, you know, we wouldn't consider doing this and sending 120,000 troops to the Middle East to intimidate Iran. Of course we wouldn't do that. But if we did do something like that, we'd send a lot more than that. I mean, either you don't want to escalate or you do. But by saying that, you're not de-escalating, you're escalating. So it's infuriating because this idiot doesn't realize that John Bolton is playing him like a fiddle and he may not want war or at least vocalize his unwillingness to get engaged in another regime change war. But nonetheless, he's not helping himself if he truly doesn't want war with Iran. Now, understand this. He previously tweeted out that Obama in 2011 would start a war with Iran in order to help his re-election chances. But if Donald Trump perceives the prospect of war as giving him any sort of advantage whatsoever to help his re-election chances, then as Farron Cousins puts it, well, maybe he isn't necessarily as closed off to the idea of war with Iran as he has previously stated. And if he believes that there's some sort of perceived electoral payoff by engaging with Iran militarily, then maybe he will. Because this is his thought process, right? He thought that Obama was willing to do it because it would help Obama get reelected. So if you have this idea that war will help your reelection chances, then maybe he'd do it himself. But I don't know. I hope that that's not the case, but you never know with Donald Trump. Now, there's been other reports that there's been infighting within his own administration because Donald Trump has been frustrated reportedly with John Bolton, who is overly hawkish and militaristic, which is not a surprise to anyone if you don't want someone who's a neocon and a warmonger 
in your ear, then don't appoint that person to be your national security advisor. But nonetheless, he basically denied that there was any infighting going on whatsoever, tweeting the fake news Washington Post and even more fake news New York Times are writing stories that there is infighting with respect to my strong policy in the Middle East. There is no infighting whatsoever. He then kind of contradicts this statement by saying, different opinions are expressed and I make a decisive and final decision. It is a very simple process. All sides, all views, and policies are covered. I'm sure that Iran will want to talk soon. He is so frustrating. So he says, there's no infighting. And then he says, well, you know, there's disagreements, but we're just hearing all views. And then he says, well, you know, we want Iran to come to the table. Dumbass, they already came to the fucking table. Obama signed the Iran deal. You just didn't like it because Obama did it and you didn't do it. But if you can sign the same deal with Iran and put your name on it, then you'd like it. But because Obama did it, it's just bad by definition. I mean, he's he's such a fool. There's no driving ideology. There's no core philosophy with regard to foreign policy here. He's just shooting from the hip. We need coherency. We need you to be coherent and have an actual goal in mind and for you to communicate that goal to us because if you don't, then what's going to happen? You're going to get taken advantage of by warmongers in your administration. And that's exactly what has been happening. It's been happening with Venezuela. It's now happening with Iran. And he can't see it because he's too much of a jackass. So it may very well not be his first instinct to go to war with Iran because we all know that that's exactly what John Bolton wants and has been pushing for. But in order to save face and not make himself look weak, he'll go along with whatever John Bolton wants and pretend as if it was his idea so he doesn't look like a pushover, so he doesn't look weak. Regardless, the situation is incredibly tense and it's worse that we have someone who's basically an empty suit in power currently who is able to easily be manipulated by warmongers who have this agenda, who, who have had this agenda for years. Back when John Bolton was in George W. Bush's administration, he was pushing for war. And now that he's in Trump's administration, he's doing what we all expected him to do, push for war with Iran. So the situation, regardless of how it turns out, now is incredibly tense but thankfully, we have real leaders in this country who are willing to speak out and call Donald Trump out. So I'm going to show you two videos. One is from Tulsi Gabbard. The other is from Bernie Sanders. In this first video, I'm going to show you it's short but concise. Tulsi is going to bluntly say what Donald Trump wants. President Trump says that he doesn't want war with Iran, but that's exactly what he wants. Because that's exactly what Saudi Arabia, Netanyahu, Al-Qaeda, Bolton, Haley, and other neocons and neolibs want. That's what he puts first, not America. So that was short, sweet, but it was exactly what was needed. Donald Trump may claim that he doesn't want war with Iran and that he wants to strike some sort of a deal, but regardless... If John Bolton is able to catalyze a war with Iran under his nose, he's going to own it. He's going to go along with it, especially now that he may perceive some sort of electoral advantage because of a war. Now, in a different video, Bernie Sanders called out John Bolton specifically and warned us that what John Bolton wants is war with Iran. And it's incumbent on all of us to pay close attention to what's happening, because if we don't, we could be looking at another disaster like we saw with the Iraq war. So I will leave you with Bernie Sanders warning here. Uh, today, the New York Times reported that, and I quote, at a meeting of President Trump's top national security aides last Thursday, 
Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan presented an updated military plan that envisions sending as many as 120,000 troops to the Middle East, end of quote, to fight Iran. Let me be as clear as I can be. A war with Iran would be an absolute disaster. As former General Anthony Zinni stated, quote, if you like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you will love the war in Iran, end of quote. I agree with General Zinni. Sixteen years ago, the United States committed one of the worst foreign policy blunders in the history of our country by attacking Iraq. That war was sold to the American people based on a series of lies about weapons of mass destruction. We should remember that one of the leading advocates for that war was John Bolton, who served then as a member of the Bush administration. Incredibly, even today, Bolton is one of the few remaining people in the world who continues to believe that that war was a good idea. Let us never forget that the Iraq war led to the deaths of more than 4,400 American troops, tens of thousands of American soldiers were wounded, and many very severely, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians were killed. The Iraq war unleashed a wave of radicalism and destabilization across the region that we will be dealing with for many, many years. It was the biggest foreign policy disaster in the modern history of our country. And now, based on that disaster that he helped bring about in Iraq, it appears that John Bolton wants a war in Iran. A war in Iran would, in my view, be many times worse than the Iraq war. U.S. military leaders have repeatedly told us that if the United States were to attack Iran, Iran would respond with attacks on U.S. troops and allies around the world. It would lead to the further destabilization of that region in a way that is unimaginable and would result in wars that would go on year after year after year and likely cost trillions of dollars. If you want to know what perpetual warfare is, never-ending war, that's what a war with Iran would mean. The United States Congress must do everything it can to prevent a war with Iran. And by the way, not inconsequentially, the Constitution of the United States is very clear. And that is that it is the Congress and not the President who determines whether or not we go to war. And right now, as we did with Yemen, I am working hard to see if we can get 51 members of the U.S. Senate, as well as a majority in the House of Representatives, to make clear that before the president takes any military action in Iran or any place else, he must seek authorization from the Congress. Taking us into a war without congressional authorization would be unconstitutional and illegal. Let me be very clear in telling you that I do understand 
that Iran pursues a lot of bad policy. This is not a model government by any means. It represses its own population, massive corruption in that country, and it supports militant groups around the area. But the United States is strong enough to deal with these issues and others diplomatically, working with our allies around the world. And that is precisely what we should be doing. We do not need to fight another unnecessary war. So I ask all of the folks who are watching this program to stand up and fight back on this issue. We must not, we cannot allow ourselves to be dragged in to another terrible, terrible war, which in my view will impact not only our generation, but the generation that our children and grandchildren live in as well. Thank you all very much. Last week, the Alabama State Senate tried to rush through a draconian anti-abortion bill without even holding a roll call vote for it. So expectedly, other lawmakers weren't too happy about this, and they spoke out, and chaos erupted on the floor of the Alabama Senate. Now, the vote on this bill ended up getting delayed temporarily, and I predicted last week when we talked about this that ultimately, I think this bill will probably end up passing. And unfortunately, I was correct about that. It passed, and it now heads to the desk of Alabama's Republican governor, who's also vehemently anti-abortion. Now, I don't necessarily know that it's a foregone conclusion that she's gonna sign it. I think probably it's going to be the case that she signs this into law. However, this bill is so extreme that even other so-called pro-life activists take issue with it. So let's talk about the bill. As Kate Smith of CBS News reports, the Alabama State Senate passed a near-total abortion ban in a 25-6 to vote on Tuesday night. The legislation provides no exceptions for rape or incest. The bill is the most restrictive anti-abortion measure passed since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. The legislation, House Bill 314, Human Life Protection Act, bans all abortions in the state except when abortion is necessary in order to prevent serious health risk to the woman, according to the bill's text. It criminalizes the procedure, reclassifying abortion as a Class A felony, punishable up to 99 years in prison for doctors. Attempted abortions will be reclassified as a Class C penalty. So this is downright barbaric. This is extreme even for the Republican Party. They're passing a bill that tells women, even if you are raped, you have to have that baby. That is not just immoral, but it is Straight up barbaric. They're taking us right back to the dark ages. How cruel is it to tell someone who was sexually assaulted, someone who was raped, one of the most horrific things that can happen to a human being, that they are forced to have a baby. And if a doctor provides that person a victim of rape with an abortion, that doctor could face 99 years in prison. The Republican Party 
At this point, they are irredeemable. The only way that American conservatism can be saved is if the Republican Party collapses entirely and Democrats become the new de facto party on the right, since they're already pretty right-wing already, and a new left-wing party emerges and takes the Democratic Party's place. Because this level of extremism is not healthy. It's destabilizing. This is insanity. Now, ideally, we'd have three to four political parties overall, but Duverger's law dictates that when you live in a winner-take-all system, you're almost always going to go back to having just two parties. So we need electoral reform. So these types of extreme fringe voices are more marginalized and they can't actually come to power as frequently. But nonetheless, this is what we're dealing with. We have extremists, anti-abortion extremists, passing laws that even the most pro-life people might take issue with. And the reason why I say that is because Americans aren't with them. You can say, sure, you know, they live in Alabama, so this is a deep red state. But when you look at public opinion polls, very few people in the country support outright bans on abortions. And even those that support bans on abortions, they always have this caveat that we've got to have an exception for rape and incest. But this bill was passed without that exception. We're seeing these types of extremist bills pop up across the country since the Republican Party secured a very conservative five-vote majority on the Supreme Court. And their goal here is to instigate a challenge. They're passing these bills with the explicit intent to get them challenged and appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. So this is just it's honestly beyond the pale even for Republicans because they've been extreme. But the fact that they would go this far, I mean, it's unspeakable. It's just unspeakable. Now, the problem is that if you truly are anti-abortion and you don't want women to have abortions, well, there are various policy prescriptions that they could pass. These lawmakers could do things to minimize the number of unwanted pregnancies and thus reduce the number of abortions. But they reject all of these solutions. As Parker Malloy points out here, they can opt for comprehensive sex education in lieu of abstinence-only education, which has been proven to not work. And if they did this, this would reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies, but they reject that. We could increase access to contraception. That would have the same effect, but they reject that as well. So they'll reject all of these solutions that are proven to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies and thus reduce the number of abortions, but they swat all of that away. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to say, no, every time you have sex, it must be with the intent to procreate. And if you get pregnant, as soon as conception occurs, there's a third person in the room. That's another human being. You are not allowed to abort that baby. And even if you're raped now, you're still going to be forced to have that baby against your will. This is extremism. It's absolutely extremism. And it's interesting to me that whenever Republicans talk about this straw man and they suppose that liberals want to ban guns, which nobody's saying that, but they suggest that our ultimate goal is to ban guns. But they tell us, well, banning guns isn't going to work because criminals are going to do what they've always done. They're going to secure guns 
illegally. Now, I'm not comparing women to criminals, but if you extend that logic to the issue of abortion, if we make abortions illegal, do you honestly believe that that will reduce the number of abortions? No. Abortions will continue to happen, but the number of safe legal abortions will decrease and unsafe illegal abortions will increase. And this isn't just me saying that. This is what evidence dictates because a 1976 study confirmed that once abortions became legal, abortion-related deaths sharply decreased. So if you're pro-life, keeping abortion legal is literally a policy that will minimize the number of deaths. Because if you tell a woman who was raped that she can't have an abortion, she's going to seek out an illegal, unsafe abortion. And that could jeopardize her life because you thought that you would impose your morality on everyone else. And truly, if you are pro-life, abortion should be the least of your concerns because we have presidents in both parties that are bombing people, innocent women and children in the Middle East and North Africa. Donald Trump's first raid in Yemen resulted in an American girl being killed we are giving Saudi Arabia bombs that they are dropping on school buses in Yemen. And what they choose to focus on is this narrow issue where they think they're being moral. You're not being moral. You're being an extremist. And by telling women that they're not allowed to have an abortion and going a step further saying they're not allowed to have an abortion even in the event they were raped... You're not being the moral person. You're being cruel. You're being immoral. Now, this goes so far. And knowing that they are trying to catalyze a challenge to this and get this to the Supreme Court, they may have inadvertently undermined their own goal. Because even Pat Robertson, another anti-abortion extremist, realizes that they're kind of undermining their own cause here by going this far. I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view <laughs> is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. I never thought... I would say this, but Pat Robertson, he kind of has a point because this is someone who's thinking about this strategically. He genuinely wants abortion in America to be illegal. He does. He wants it to be illegal. But what he's communicating to these Alabamian lawmakers is, look, you've gone too far. If you truly want to make sure that Roe v. Wade is overturned, what you do is you push the limit only to an extent. You make it so that way you pass a bill that gives the state a little bit more discretion to regulate abortion. But what Alabama did here, it's so beyond the pale, so punitive, so brazenly extreme that even the conservative Supreme Court justices who hold a majority may not be able to give anti-abortion activists what they want because this bill just goes too far. So the silver lining is that their zealotry may ultimately end up being their downfall. But nonetheless, in the state of Alabama, this is horrifying. If you are raped in the state of Alabama, 
you will be denied an abortion. And if a doctor chooses to give you one, regardless of that law, he or she may face up to 99 years in prison. I don't know what to even say about this other than this is downright disgusting and quite frankly terrifying that we have one party in this country that's willing to go this extreme, this far to the right. So Joe Biden recently made a lot of liberals incredibly angry because an article from Reuters came out recently that cited two sources close to Biden that indicated that he'd be seeking a more middle ground approach when it comes to the issue of climate change. And rather than taking bold action, he'd instead be doing more incremental things to mitigate climate change. So he'd rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, for example. Now, the problem is that even when Obama joined the Paris Climate Accord, it didn't go far enough back then, but now we have even more data telling us that we need to act urgently, otherwise we will not be able to stop a climate catastrophe. The IPCC in last December just warned us that we have 12 years to get our act together. So to see this from a leading Democrat, it had a lot of people on the left justifiably outraged, because if you're going to pursue a middle ground approach, then we will not save the planet. You will not stop the planet from becoming an apocalyptic hellscape, pretty much. So Joe Biden saw that everyone was ripping him, and that same day, he walked back this claim that his advisors had put out, tweeting, I'm proud to have been one of the first to introduce climate change legislation. What I fought for in 1986 is more important than ever. Climate change is an existential threat. Now... Today, we need policies that reflect this urgency. I'll have more specifics on how America can lead on climate in the coming weeks. Now, I don't think that this satisfied anyone because everybody knows that Joe Biden is willing to say and do anything to get elected. He takes policy positions much like Hillary Clinton for purposes of political expediency. So he's telling us this now, but we all know once he gets elected, he's going to do whatever his donors want. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, someone who's been a leader on this, decided to take a thinly veiled shot at Joe Biden. So she tweeted out an article from Common Dreams that explains how CO2 levels for the first time in more than 3 million years hit 415 parts per million. And she says, this is why a middle ground approach to our climate crisis is unacceptable. This isn't like other issues where you can pretend you're a sober adult by cutting the difference between left and right. You're either fighting for our future or you're not. So it's obvious that She's talking about Joe Biden here. And before he jumped into the race, she made comments about him that suggested that she's not too happy about him running for president. In fact, she said something along the lines of she's not excited about a Joe Biden candidacy or it doesn't excite her. But nonetheless, she doesn't like what he's saying here because this undermines what she's been pushing for with the Green New Deal. She crafted legislation specifically, specifically designed to meet the urgency of this crisis and what he's saying here in opting for a more middle ground approach is basically a slap in the face to that effort it's a slap in the face to all of these climate change activists who have been begging democrats to take bold action so the problem is that joe biden will say one thing and then do another so the fact that he walked back this middle ground approach it's not going to persuade anyone because we know that 
he's going to govern as an incrementalist, as a centrist, because that's how him and Obama govern for eight years, because he was the vice president. We don't have to try to speculate about the way that he would govern. We know how he would govern. We have the empirical evidence that dictates that he will pursue a middle ground approach if he does anything on climate change. Will he even push for legislation, or will he just pursue executive action that can be undone the next time we get a Republican president. So obviously, this won't suffice. And at a speech, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about the Green New Deal, and she very bluntly took another shot at Joe Biden, and it was phenomenal. When they say that calling for a Green New Deal is, quote, too much, or too extreme, or too radical, no middle ground is right. Here's what's too much for me. What's too much for me is politicians looking and allowing babies' blood to get poisoned in Flint for corporate profits. That is what is too much for me. What's too much for me, what's too much for me is coal barons coming up to Washington, D.C., demanding bailout after tax break, after bailout for themselves, and then not even paying their own miners' pensions and put their own miners' health care. That is what is too much for me. That is too much for me. What is too much for me is the fact that ExxonMobil knew exactly that climate change was real and man-made as far back as 1970, and instead of being part of the solution, they paid millions of dollars to lobby and lie and confuse the American public about it, endangering generations to come. That is too much for me. What is too much for me is the fact that in 1989, the year that I was born, the year that I was born, the year that many of us were born, and, and in years after and right before, that politicians were first informed by NASA, that Congress was first notified by NASA that climate change was going to threaten my life and everyone here's life to come, and they did nothing. That is too much for me. And I, and I will be damned if the same politicians who refuse to act then are going to try to come back today and say we need a middle of the, the middle of the road approach to save our lives. That is too much for me. That was really good. I'm going to read you that quote again. I'll be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to come back today and say we need a middle of the road approach to save our lives. That is too much for me. That was amazing. Because she's right here. The reason why he is seeking out this middle-of-the-road approach is because he doesn't want to take action when it comes to climate change. He may care about it, but he has a lot of special interests in his ear who will be persuading him to do otherwise. So he knows that if he says, well, look, we need to work with Republicans that's going to give him plausible deniability. He's going to say, look, I tried to work with Republicans and they shot me down so I couldn't do anything. So 
I guess we can't do anything. But going back to her tweet, when she says that, you know, you're not acting like a grown-up if you're splitting the difference between left and right, she's 100% correct here. Because you're not being reasonable. You're being an imbecile. You're being suicidal here, and you're putting all of our lives at risk by saying you want to seek out middle ground between Democrats and Republicans. One party believes in climate change and kind of wants to act. The other party doesn't believe in climate change at all. Donald Trump thinks climate change is a Chinese hoax. So even if you seek out middle ground and you concede to their insanity, even minimally, they still win. That's still a victory for them. So what AOC is doing here and calling him out is a public service because she has the popularity and the name recognition that will maybe make him realize that he's not going to win anyone on the left over if he's going to continue to pander to Republican voters who he thinks he needs to win over, which we all know if you want to win, you've got to get non-voters to come out and vote for you. But again, this is Joe Biden, so he's dim-witted. But nonetheless, she's been taking these thinly veiled shots at him and he's now starting to take notice because a reporter from the Hill actually asked him about this at, I believe, a yogurt shop. He's always in these ice cream or yogurt shops. But nonetheless, he was asked about this and his response basically was, me? Are you talking about me? <laughs> like he literally denied that she was even talking about him. Take a look. You never heard me say middle of the road. I've never been in the middle of the road on the environment. And I tell her to check, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the statements that I made and look at my record. She'll find that nobody has been more consistent about taking on the environment and a green revolution than I have. And so, look, uh, anyway, but I, so I, 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 I can't, I don't think she's talking about that. <laughs> His response is to deny, deny, deny. What, me? I've never said middle of the road. Have you heard me say that? Well, no, so I guess that's technically true, but people closest to you have said that that's what you are pursuing. And it's not like that's some absurd thing to believe. You're a centrist. You are a center-right politician. So of course you're going to pursue middle ground when it comes to this issue and pretty much every other issue. But he says, oh, I've never said that. Well, come on, you're being disingenuous because we know that that's what your team knows that you're going to do. And that's why they said it. He also says, I've never been middle of the road on the environment. Well, you have a really weird way of showing that you know about the urgency with which we need to act because you were vice president for eight years and you didn't say too much when it comes to climate change. You haven't been a leader on the issue of climate change. And then he says, you know, if AOC is talking about him, then look at his record. I don't think you wanted to do that. But then he ends by saying, I don't think she's talking about me. Joe Biden is such a joke. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about his other recent denials. He denies that his crime bill led to mass incarceration. He's denied this or made this claim twice now in a week. He's a danger. If he wins the nomination, we are risking another four years of Donald Trump. So if you are on the left, if you are a liberal and you still have these warm and fuzzy feelings for Joe Biden, 
put that aside and realize that you're playing with fire if your ultimate goal is truly to defeat Donald Trump. At a rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday, Joe Biden said something regarding Donald Trump and the Republican Party that is so naive, so almost borderline delusional, it nearly made my head explode. Essentially, what he's going to do is cleanse the Republican Party of all their wrongdoing and say, it's not you who's the problem, it's Donald Trump who's the problem. And not only will he imply that, but he'll take it a step further and actually suggest that once Donald Trump is out, the Republican Party will suddenly have an epiphany and they're going to fundamentally change because seeing how bad Donald Trump was is going to make them want to do better. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> He's actually going to suggest this. He says, We found ourselves in a position where an awful lot of Republicans have become intimidated, intimidated by the president. The thing that will fundamentally change things is with Donald Trump out of the White House. Not a joke. You will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends. And it's already beginning. In the House now, you've seen people that, in fact, were not willing to vote for any Democratic initiative, even if they agreed with it, because they didn't want to be the odd person out if it wasn't going to happen. There's not sense in getting politically beaten for something that's not going to happen. But you are seeing the talk, even the dialogue is changing. So look, let me put it another way. If we can't change, we're in trouble. This nation can't function without generating consensus. I can't believe he thinks this. Now, I don't know if he's pandering to moderate Republicans who he's trying to win over, or if he genuinely believes this, but this is absurd. What he's saying here is Trump is the problem. And if you get rid of Donald Trump, if you take out that one blemish on the Republican Party's otherwise okay record, I guess, then everything else will be peachy keen. Joe, I don't understand how you don't remember this, but in the pre-Trump era, when you were in the White House for two different terms, you literally adopted the Republican Party's right-wing healthcare reform. The ACA was modeled after a plan that was devised by the Heritage Foundation. It was basically Romneycare. You took their plan, Joe, and they gave you zero votes. And on top of that, they went on to try to repeal that more than 50 times. You selected a center-right Supreme Court justice to get them on board, and Mitch McConnell didn't even allow one hearing to be held for Merrick Garland. They literally stole a Supreme Court justice from you. This was all pre-Trump. And you're saying that once Trump is gone, then Republicans will suddenly have an epiphany? Joe, Donald Trump isn't some kind of aberration. He's not an exception to the rule. He is the rule. Donald Trump puts an ugly face to repulsive Republican Party 
policies. But with Joe, he's not too down on the policies that Donald Trump is implementing. Neither are these center-right Republicans. These so-called moderate Republicans like Ana Navarro. Because if you remove Donald Trump from the situation and you replace him with someone who doesn't do mean tweets, who isn't as belligerent, who's at least somewhat intelligent, but you just have him doing all the same policies, they'll be okay with that. So the one thing that really differentiates Trump from the rest of the GOP is that he's angry. He's mean. I don't, I don't honestly understand how someone who was the vice president for two terms can come to this conclusion when he saw their obstruction, their extremism firsthand. And the reason why, Joe, they're so insane is because you let them get this way. If you have a strong opposition party who firmly plants their feet in the ground and says, we're not going to follow you off a cliff as you march towards the extreme right, then you force them to return back to the center. But you haven't done that. Democrats have been so weak, they've just followed Republicans towards the right. And now we're in this awful hellscape situation where both parties are right-wing. One is center-right, the other is right-wing. And now it really doesn't seem like there's any change when we elect a president in different parties. Think about this. When George W. Bush left office, did Obama end the war in Iraq? Did he end the Afghanistan war? No. He ramped up the drone war that Bush started using the Bush doctrine. And then when Obama left office, we had someone else come in and say, look, I'm non-interventionist. Now, there were a lot of signs, a lot of red flags that indicated Trump wouldn't be as anti-intervention as he suggested on the campaign trail. But what did he do? Immediately ramps up the drone war, is escalating now in Venezuela and Iran. I mean... I don't understand how Joe Biden can say this, but maybe it's because the difference between Democrats and Republicans, it really is becoming more blurred. That line is getting less distinguishable, and there's still considerable difference. I don't want to do this false equivalence, but what I'm trying to say is that if you think that Trump is the exception to the rule, I don't know what to say. You're just not that bright, Joe. You are not that bright if you genuinely believe something this stupid. I mean, it's unfathomable to me that someone can think this. The Republican Party would suddenly have this epiphany if Trump is out. Donald Trump is the perfect representation of the Republican Party. And guess what? The base loves him. The base absolutely loves him because he has, what, 87 90% approval rating after his first 500 days in office, higher than other party approval ratings of presidents in the past, of most anyways. I mean, this makes no sense. It just shows that Biden here in saying, you know, the nation can't function without consensus. What he's telling you is that he's going to get in office and he's going to do the exact same thing that made President Obama so ineffectual. He's going to extend a hand to Republicans and they're going to shoot him down. They're going to spit in his face and he's going to keep coming back for more. It's like he's a masochist. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee. This says, fool me once. Shame on Shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. So, in other words, if you keep trying to meet them halfway, you're meeting crazy 
halfway. It's the same thing with climate change. There were two individuals close to Biden who claimed he wants some sort of middle ground when it comes to climate change policy. Now, he has since backtracked and said, no, I'm not seeking middle ground, but we all know that that's exactly what he's going to do. But if you even have this thought that you need to seek out middle ground between denying climate change and doing something about climate change, or at least acknowledging that it exists, then you're already losing. Because if you concede halfway with someone who's insane, then that's a loss for you no matter what. Because you're agreeing that this insane person is at least partially legitimate. So Joe Biden is out of his mind if he genuinely believes this. Part of me thinks that maybe he's just pandering to Republicans who he thinks he needs to win over. But Joe, if this is actually your strategy, look at what Hillary Clinton did. She was not successful in winning over moderate Republicans, and you won't be any more successful. It wasn't necessarily because Hillary Clinton was unable to win over moderate Republicans. It was because she didn't pursue the correct electoral strategy, and it seems as if you're not going to do that as well. The correct strategy... If you make it to the general, which I hope you don't, I hope it's Bernie or Tulsi or Warren, but if you make it to the general, what do you need to do to defeat Donald Trump? You get people who haven't voted to come out and vote for you. You galvanize the base, you go after non-voters. Because these so-called moderate Republicans, they're going to stick with Donald Trump. They like what he's doing. They don't mind the mean tweets. And even if everyone in Washington, D.C., if the elite media class, the pundits, all screech about how decorum is ruined because of Donald Trump, understand that the base likes him and acknowledge that Trump isn't that much different than Republicans. If anything, I'd say McConnell or Mike Pence even is worse than Donald Trump because politically, I think they would be more dangerous because they'd actually be able to get their agenda accomplished because they have experience. They know what they need to do to win politically and appease their donors. So I, again, am puzzled by Joe Biden's ignorance here if he genuinely believes this, but I hope he's pandering. I mean, well, I don't hope he's pandering, but it would just be bizarre to say something that dim-witted after he saw firsthand how insane the Republican Party was even before Donald Trump was in the picture. <laughs> Look, we've got to defeat Joe Biden because if he wins, you, you've you already seen he's been in the race now for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and it's not going too well. He's put his foot in his own mouth like 1,800 times. And this could be a disaster if he wins. The cost of prescription drugs in America has been steadily increasing to the point where I don't think it's hyperbolic to now officially classify this as a crisis. Because we're in really bad shape. If you're someone who depends on life-saving drugs there's a real possibility that you may not be able to get that medicine. In fact, one-third of Americans can't afford their prescription drugs. And to give you some more examples, the price of insulin alone doubled between 2012 and 2016. The cost of a drug that prevents HIV costs almost $2,000 in the United States, whereas it only costs $8 in Australia, there's more than 250 drugs that are seeing an average price increase of 6.5%, and some are seeing an increase as high as 10%. This is not sustainable. People are now dying because the cost of prescription drugs is continuing to rise and rise and rise. And when you have other first world countries 
paying far less than we're paying, you know that this is a failure, explicitly so, of government. Now, to really have you grasp how painful this is and how this impacts people on a very personal level, I want to play a clip from CNN that was actually really phenomenal that talks about one woman and how she just can't afford the cost of insulin. Without this, she dies, but she can't afford it. So this is what she has to do. This is her experience. This is a really short one-minute clip. Jennifer Turner has diabetes. Without this insulin, she'll die. I have to ration my insulin. Why? Because I can't afford it. Turner has health insurance through her full-time job at a bank. But even so, her insulin costs her more than $1,100 a month, more than her rent. So for the past four months, instead of taking 10 to 15 units of insulin, she takes just five, drastically less. So every day you're giving yourself less insulin than you need. How does that make you feel? I'm a grandmother and I work and I love my family. And I know this isn't the way, but the right way, but I don't have any choices. Do you worry about dying? Yes. It could be, I'm hoping not a painful death, but I mean, it's a real situation. It's really difficult to watch stories like that. And her story really is a microcosm of a broader issue. She's one of millions of people struggling currently. There's a story that I just read about a teen who is cutting back on insulin in order to help his parents save money. I mean, it's gut-wrenching. We live in a first-world country where we have virtually unlimited sums of money for never-ending wars, but when it comes to taking care of our own people, this is what we're dealing with. And insulin is just one of many examples. There's numerous prescription drugs that people are having to cut and, you know, skip doses because... They just can't afford it. So what choice do they have? If you can't afford it and you don't have the money, you don't have the money. So what do you do? Some people are relying on GoFundMe to raise funds, but that's not a long-term solution. It's a short-term solution that maybe will buy them some extra time. But with that being said, it's not an end-all be-all. Obviously, we need the government to take action because these pharmaceutical companies, they aren't concerned with people getting the treatment that they need. That's not the goal for them. Their goal is to make money, to make profits. Now, one example of a very greedy CEO is the CEO of the company Gilead. His name is Daniel O'Day, and they manufacture a drug called Truvada, which is a drug that prevents HIV. It literally is a life-saving drug. Now, he testified before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and he was confronted by numerous Democrats, but I want to show you a clip of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez confronting him because he's charging Americans almost $2,000 for this drug when Australians only pay $8 for it. So she's going to ask him here in this next clip why this is the case. Why are we being gouged, but Australians are not being gouged? And he's not going to have a very satisfactory answer, unsurprisingly. Very quickly, Mr. O'Day, you're the CEO of Gilead. Um, is it true that Gilead made $3 billion in profits from the sales of Truvada in 2018? 
Uh, $3 billion in revenue. Oh, yes, in revenue. Thank you. And very quickly, uh, the current list price is $2,000 a month in the United States, correct? The current list price is 1780 in the United okay. States. And, and just to correct, the $3 billion was a global figure okay. uh, for, uh, for Truvada, uh, for PrEP. So, so the list price is almost $2,000 in the United States. Why is it $8 in Australia? Uh, Truvada still has patent protection in the United States, and in the rest of the world it is generic. I can't comment on the price in Australia of the generic medicines, uh, but it is generically available in other parts of the world and will be generically available uh, in the United States as of September in 2020 based upon Gilead. Uh, agreeing to, uh, to support Thank generic you. entries uh, one year So early. I think it's important that we notice here that we the public, we the people, developed this drug, we paid for this drug, we led and developed all of the grounding patents to create PrEP, and then that patent has been privatized, despite the fact that the patent is owned by the public. We refuse to enforce it. There's no reason this should be $2,000 a month. People are dying because of it, and, and there's no enforceable reason for it. We own the intellectual, the core intellectual property for it, and as a result, uh, people's, people are are dying for no reason, for no reason to develop this drug. Thank you very much. So that was absolutely fantastic, and she got her point across, I think. Why are you profiting off of what we own? Why do Americans have to wait until September of 2020 for a generic version when this is our intellectual property? He doesn't have a good response. And part of the reason why Australians only pay $8 for Truvada is because they have a universal type healthcare system. It's more of a mixed public-private system, but their healthcare in Australia is free at the point of service, which means that it's either going to be heavily subsidized or the government will negotiate drug prices. So this is only happening in America because we are allowing it to happen. Lawmakers haven't done enough. They haven't adequately acted to bring down the cost of prescription drugs. And we all know part of the reason is because they're bought. Republicans at this actual hearing shamelessly defended this CEO's willingness to put profit over people. For example, Republican Chip Roy said, I just cannot understand why we are spending time sitting here listening to people lecturing companies about making money. I hope you make a lot of money. And then we had Jim Jordan say, rather than applaud Gilead for manufacturing this miracle drug, they wish to demonize the company for making profit. Yeah, we're going to demonize the company if they're going to put profits over people. And that's exactly what they're doing. But I mean, these are supposedly pro-life Republicans here. But to be fair, it's not just Republicans. We all saw back in 2017 when Cory Booker chose to vote against a bill by Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar of all people a centrist that would allow us to import generic drugs from Canada. He voted against that. When we looked into his fundraising, it was evident that he was in the pocket of big pharma. So this is an issue related to corruption. Pharmaceutical companies are lobbying. They are contributing to the campaigns of politicians, and they are essentially buying complicity here. So understand the reason why this is happening is very simple, because lawmakers are allowing it to happen. In a sane world, the United States would be like other countries, like Canada, like Australia, and we'd be negotiating or we'd be importing cheaper prescription drugs that would force these companies to compete 
with the cost of cheaper generics. But that's not happening. So kudos to AOC because this is the line of questioning that we need to see. And Elijah Cummings also did a really good job here. But until we take action, this will continue to happen because these companies don't care about helping people. They care about profits. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked about whether or not she'd be making an endorsement soon, who she's considering, and whether or not she'd endorse Joe Biden or consider endorsing uh, Joe Biden. Here's what she had to say about that. Endorsing the presidential <laughs> race, and specifically whether or not you're going to endorse Port. I mean, what's your thought process on that right now? Well, for me, uh, what what is always so important is to make sure that, for me personally, what I w would like to see in a presidential candidate is one that has a coherent uh, worldview and logic uh, from which all these policy proposals are coming forward. I think Senator Sanders has that. I also think Senator Warren has that. Um, and I also want to see us centering working people in the United States to stem income inequality, tackle climate change, and people who are bold of really big ideas that are going to make people's lives better. So do you think you will endorse during the Democratic primary? Is that something uh, you're leaving, at least leaving that option I'm, open? I'm entertaining, but it's not going to be for a while. So. Would you consider Vice President Biden? Pardon? Would you consider Vice President Biden? I'm not sure yet. I mean, now it's getting a little so I love how the minute he name dropped Biden, she was like, pardon? <laughs> because ideologically speaking, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Biden are so different that the thought that she'd endorse him over someone like Bernie Sanders or Tulsi Gabbard or Elizabeth Warren is honestly preposterous. And I think she knows it's preposterous, which is why, you know, they uh, <laughs> they decided to not answer that. But she is genuinely struggling about this decision, it appears, whether or not she'll endorse Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. And on one hand, part of me wants to give her a pass, but the other part of me is irritated, if I'm being honest. Because on one hand, this isn't the same as 2016, right? We were presented with two very different options. Hillary Clinton, who was right-wing, and Bernie Sanders, who was a social democrat. So if you are progressive, if you're someone like Elizabeth Warren, it's not even a question. You obviously would opt for someone who you ideologically align with. But in this situation, I get that it is a little bit different. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are two fairly progressive options that she's considering. I'm not honestly sure why Tulsi Gabbard isn't even a consideration for her, but with that being said, she doesn't talk much about foreign policy, so maybe just that's something that doesn't appeal to her. I wish Tulsi was part of her consideration, but nonetheless, you know, there are different options. There's more progressives. You know, if you, if you don't opt for Bernie because you support Warren... I would disagree with that, but at least I could see how it could be rationalized. Whereas back in 2016, there's no way to rationalize endorsing Hillary over Bernie if you're progressive, unless you're only looking out for your own career. But I believe that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's not just a careerist. She's someone who actually cares deeply about the issues. So I get that. However, on the opposite side of the same coin... Really, AOC? <laughs> I mean, she was a staffer for Bernie Sanders in 2016. And even if the difference between Bernie and Warren is 
substantially smaller than the differences between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Still, Bernie Sanders is Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren is diet Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren lacks the courage to get any of her goals accomplished. I don't believe that she would deliver Medicare for All to us because she co-sponsored the bill, and any time an interviewer brings it up and asks her about it, she runs away from it and says, well, you know, I also co-sponsored a public option bill, and, you know, dropping the age of Medicare to 55. So, she's someone who... Ideologically speaking, I think that she has a lot of great ideas. She's constantly coming up with new innovative policy positions. But what we need is to fundamentally change the system. And I just don't believe that Warren would do that, whereas Bernie Sanders wants to do that. Elizabeth Warren would introduce several policies that I think would drastically improve many lives of Americans. But if you don't get that reform on a broad level, you're, you're just not doing much. And that's really the key difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Sunkara did a really phenomenal article about this where he outlines these differences. You know, Bernie Sanders is more socialistic to his core, whereas Elizabeth Warren, she was formerly a Republican. And that was a long time ago. She certainly gets a pass for that, but she still describes herself as a capitalist. So these are very important things that you should consider if you're someone like AOC, who self-identifies as a democratic socialist. So on one hand, I get it, there are more progressives running this time, but on another hand, still, it's obvious that Bernie is the answer. Bernie is the individual who will deliver what we all want. So if she doesn't endorse Bernie Sanders, I will be thoroughly disappointed. However, I, coming into 2020, set my expectations extremely low, like they're on the ground. Because after 2016, when Elizabeth Warren didn't endorse Bernie Sanders and she left him hanging in Massachusetts when that could have made the difference, I I told myself, you're not going to get your hopes up, otherwise you will be disappointed. There's no heroes in politics, and if we understand that going into 2020, mentally speaking, we'll all be better off. Myself included, yourself included. So I wasn't even expecting Ro Khanna to endorse Bernie, and then I was pleasantly surprised when it was announced that he'd be a national co-chair for Bernie Sanders. So my expectations are very low, but I think it is obvious that the person who she should endorse is Bernie Sanders. And if she doesn't endorse during the primary, I think that will be really disappointing for a lot of progressives. Really disappointing. Now, with that being said, does it make sense for her, just from a strategic standpoint, to wait to endorse? I think so. Because for me, if I'm in her position, if I'm a lawmaker, I wouldn't un endorse unless I secured some type of concession, whatever that may be. So maybe she wants to wait to endorse to see if Elizabeth Warren surges or if she really does peter out. I think that that would make sense and that could potentially explain why she's waiting. And another reason is that she's just, you know, genuinely torn. But with that being said, it's obvious the correct answer is Bernie Sanders. She knows that she worked for Bernie Sanders, so I hope that she does the right thing. But with that being said, there's an article from the New York Post by Lee Brown that talks about Elizabeth Warren and why she is now aggressively going after an AOC endorsement. Because AOC is someone with a lot of political capital. She has name recognition. She's highly popular. So if you can secure an AOC endorsement, you're getting a boost.
So here's what Lee Brown writes about Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Elizabeth Warren is making an aggressive pitch, Politico says, having met with AOC privately and written a gushing essay about her for Time magazine, perhaps referring to herself when she wrote, millions are taking cues from her. Really, Warren? You gave us the cold shoulder back in 2016. You wouldn't endorse Bernie Sanders. You left him hanging. And now, when it's convenient for you, you want progressives to support you. You want someone literally from Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 to support you after you didn't have the courage to endorse someone who was obviously more closer to you ideologically. So I see this, and I think, I mean, the nerve. What would make you think that you deserve an endorsement over Bernie Sanders from AOC. I mean, and look, part of me is trying to put my feelings aside here, right? Facts over feelings, as <laughs> another soy boy says, because if you just separate what Warren did and how she betrayed progressives in 2016, how she is running away from Medicare for All, how she refused to go to Standing Rock, if you put that aside, She's a good politician, right? She is the second most progressive senator. There's a lot of great things about Elizabeth Warren. So if you put aside your feelings, yeah, you know, there's value there. And hopefully we can all move on from 2016. But with that being said, realistically speaking, there are so many progressives, people who I know personally, who can't move on. Because what she did was such a betrayal that it makes it really difficult to see past her unwillingness to support us in 2016. And I believe it's more than just her betraying us in 2016. If she didn't have the courage to make an easy decision then, then will she fight for us if she's in the White House? And I think that's what people are genuinely conflicted with when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. Now, did she probably wait to endorse Hillary because she thought Hillary would win and wanted some leverage or some type of policy concession in the event Hillary became president? Sure. But... You can't call yourself a real progressive if you're not willing to get people elected into powerful positions who are willing to fight for what you and I believe in. So on one hand, I feel like it's important that we put aside our feelings, but on another hand, it still does speak volumes to the way in which I think Warren would govern in the event she's elected president. And I just don't think she has a lot of political courage, which is incredibly sad. But... I don't want to make this about Bernie versus Warren because I do feel like it's really important for progressives to stay united because Warren isn't the enemy. And if you're supporting Warren, Bernie isn't the enemy. Tulsi Gabbard isn't the enemy. Andrew Yang isn't the enemy. Marianne Williamson is not the enemy. We have one very big enemy. We have a common enemy regardless of who you support. And that individual is Joe Biden because like it or not, Maybe we underestimated him. He poses a fairly large threat. And this is only the beginning, right? So he could, you know, um, eventually die out. The momentum could dissipate. But with that being said, he may be more out of touch than Hillary Clinton, but I think that he is at least more talented as a politician than Hillary Clinton because he knows what to say to drum up these feelings of nostalgia that can win people over. Like, if you go to his YouTube channel... The next ad that he posted was a video of Obama saying really nice things about Joe Biden. He knows exactly what to do. He's playing on your emotions on a really visceral level. So regardless if you support Tulsi 
or Warren or Williamson or Yang, we all have a common enemy. And that person is Joe Biden. And we all need to unite to defeat him. So going back to AOC, do I hope she makes the right decision and endorses Bernie Sanders, who's a social Democrat? Of course I do. If she does not, will I be upset? Absolutely. Um, but with that being said, at the end of the day, if you're still pushing for the right policies, I can get past it. I'm trying to get past it with Warren. But again, I'm setting my expectations incredibly low because I'm embedding disappointment into my expectations so I can move on from 2020 and we don't have another 2016 on our hands. So I'll leave that there. So in case you haven't noticed, we haven't been hearing too much lately from Howard Schultz and it's been really wonderful. It's been incredibly peaceful without his annoying presence in the 2020 field, but there's a very specific reason as to why he's gone silent. His Twitter account has, as of late, gone dormant, and it's because he feels as if he may not actually have to run as a centrist independent after all, because he's thinking that Joe Biden is probably going to pull off a victory and become the Democratic Party nominee. However, in the event Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren pulls out a victory, that is what will catalyze a Howard Schultz centrist independent run. This is what two people close to Howard Schultz are saying. So a report from Fox News of all places highlights the reason why he has chosen to suspend public talks of an independent run. This is from Charlie Gasparino, who writes, Billionaire businessman and former Starbucks chief executive Howard Schultz has delayed his decision on whether to run for president as an independent as he assesses the possibility of former Vice President Joe Biden capturing the Democratic nomination, Fox Business has learned. If Biden, a moderate liberal who is friendly to business, emerged as the likely Democratic nominee, this would be a significant impediment to Schultz running for president since his campaign would focus on similar issues to Biden's according to two people with direct knowledge of Schultz's thinking. And if Biden does survive a Democratic primary without betraying his record as a moderate, it's unlikely Schultz would mount his independent campaign, they add. People close to Schultz say the former CEO, who has never run for office in the past, recently has been keeping a low profile in part because of back surgery. He is also paying close attention to the burgeoning field of Democratic candidates entering the race and whether far-left candidates like socialist Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders or Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren could win the nomination, which will all but certain lead him to join the race as an independent. One additional factor, Schultz may be weighing the cutthroat nature of a campaign. As Fox Business reported in February, Schultz was, quote, freaked out by the early Democratic backlash he received while promoting a potential presidential run. His decision will be based on how the Democratic field shakes out and seeing how Biden fares, said one of the people familiar with Schultz's decision making. If Joe Biden remains strong and remains a moderate, there clearly is a much narrower path. So this is incredibly infuriating to me because what we have here is a petulant billionaire who's trying to hold the Democratic Party hostage if he doesn't get his way. Because not only is he saying, I'm going to run if someone who I don't like wins, but he's also saying, if Joe Biden doesn't do what I want him to do, if he doesn't run his campaign in a way that appeals to me... I'm going to jump in and spoil it. 
I'm going to guarantee essentially that Donald Trump gets a second term. The nerve of this guy. And think about this. There's no way he's delusional enough to think that he can actually win because I think he's a very dim-witted person. He's another dumb billionaire, but I don't actually believe he's stupid enough to think he can win. Because think about how hard it is for someone who isn't part of one of the major two parties to win. Back in 2016, we had the most disliked candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, ever run for president. So if there was ever going to be an election cycle where someone from the Green Party or the Libertarian Party would be able to get at least that 5% threshold where they'd be able to secure federal funding, it would have been 2016. But back then, neither of them got to 5%. Even someone as politically talented as Jill Stein couldn't get barely more than 1%. Duverger's law held strong even in an instance where you had two very unlikable characters running. So what makes him think that he's special and he can somehow subvert the two-party system and beat Trump and potentially Bernie or Warren? I just don't think he honestly believes this. It's unfathomable. He just is getting in to spoil it. That's what this is about. He wants to make sure that he keeps his tax cuts no matter what. And if someone like Warren or Bernie or I'm assuming Tulsi got in and threatened to raise his taxes, he'd rather opt for someone like Donald Trump. Because even if Donald Trump makes the pundit class and the elites like Howard Schultz feel uneasy because he is overtly bigoted and flirts with fascism, the thing about Donald Trump is that he still does things that are beneficial to the ruling class. He cuts their taxes. He does what the military-industrial complex wants. He wants to deregulate the industries. So Trump, in their view, in his view, is a better option than Bernie Sanders. So if he doesn't get what he wants, he's willing to jump in and spoil it. This guy is one of the nerviest people ever. And look, if this happens, if we get a Bernie Sanders democratic nomination and he does this i don't think he realizes that there will be hell to pay we will fucking rain down on him like hellfire there will be a boycott outside of every single starbucks store in the country because even if he's no longer the starbucks ceo he still is a majority shareholder so this will hurt his bottom line you're not going to be able to Spoil this election for us, Howard, because you're not getting what you want. Because if you want to fuck with us, we're going to bite back. We're not going to take this lying down. If you want to ruin this election so you can keep your precious tax cuts, then we're going to make sure that we hit you where it hurts. And that is your bottom line. But just the fact that he is essentially threatening the Democratic Party. He's even threatening Joe Biden. Make sure you continue on this trajectory as a moderate. Otherwise, I'm going to run, Joe. Unreal. Now, let's say, hypothetically speaking, Bernie Sanders did win and he jumped in. Would this hurt Bernie? Would this take votes away from Bernie? Take votes away from Bernie. I don't like using that word because obviously votes have to be earned, but I mean, he has one very narrow goal, and that is to hand the election to Trump. But could Bernie still win? 
Yeah, and in fact, I think that even if Howard Schultz was running, I think Bernie most likely would win, but it would definitely make Bernie's chances um, a little less likely of winning, right? It would hurt Bernie. It would cut into his lead because you know that there'd be people like, you know, uh, Joe Scarborough and these elites, these moderates in mainstream media who probably would opt for Howard Schultz after beating us over the head for years saying fall in line, unity, unity, unity. We know that they'd either vote for Donald Trump or vote for Howard Schultz. But nonetheless, if that happened, I still think Bernie would win because there was a three-way matchup back in 2016 that was conducted after Michael Bloomberg was considering the same thing. And guess who still won? Bernie Sanders. Now, it was really close. It was by a percent, but he still won nonetheless. And Michael Bloomberg has more name recognition and actually has political experience. Howard Schultz does not, and he is largely hated by everyone. So I don't think that it would necessarily be a guarantee in spite of what I uh, I said, but that's certainly what he's hoping for. He wants to spoil the election so Trump gets a second term because that's better than the alternative, Bernie Sanders, in his view. And I love how basically, you know, um, they talk about how back in February they reported on how he was freaked out by Democratic backlash. You were um, freaked out by that? What were you expecting? You're basically threatening to spoil the election. If Trump is elected for four more years, ask yourself this. How many more Supreme Court justices will he be able to appoint? I know that this doesn't matter much to Howard Schultz because no matter who's on the Supreme Court, no matter what the makeup is, he's insulated from whatever damage they could cause because he has billions of dollars. But everyone else would be royally fucked. And if it's because of Howard Schultz, he will never live it down. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've watched this far, I truly appreciate your viewership. If you're listening to the show on iTunes or SoundCloud, thank you so much. You guys also help the show uh, to keep going. So before we leave, I want to send a shout out to all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. And we will leave it there. I'm going to go take off this Warren shirt because I've been trying to wear the four progressive shirts that I purchased each week. I did Tulsi, Bernie, and now I'm doing Warren, and I have a Yang shirt that I will wear on the show next week. But ironically, I'm wearing this shirt as I'm irritated with Warren today because she made these weird remarks about, you know, the issue of climate change undermining military readiness. And I'm just over that. <laughs> so I'm going to change out of this shirt because of course I'd wear it on the day when Warren says something that irritates me. But nonetheless, we'll leave that there. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is the Humanist Report. I'll see you all next week. Take care.